Well, thanks be to God indeed, I reckon. It's, uh, it's a great reading, and we have, uh, we have lots before us this morning uh, that will be challenging and hopefully encouraging uh, in equal points uh, along the way. Uh, I was going to pray at the start, Simeon, but you did such a good job of praying for me, mate. I'm just going to say I'm into that and we'll dive in. So uh, thank you for, uh, for preparing so carefully. Uh, and uh, I really value your prayers for us as we look at the word this morning. So thanks for that. Well, I want to start by asking you, uh, well, I'll ask you a question in a second. Tell you what happened to me. Uh, through a uh, nice set of circumstances, uh, $100 fell into, uh, fell into my lap recently, which was pretty nice. Has anyone seen one of these before? I, they're, they're not a usual thing around the place, are they? Anyway, suffice to say, uh, that was pretty nice. So $100 fell into my, uh, fell into my lap. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I think um, often I hear people say, uh, I, I really like preachers who are really honest about their struggles and that sort of thing. And I always think that's an interesting thing. Uh, do you really want to see uh, everything about your, your, your leaders up front, you know, preached out? I, I want to share a little bit of a, this is a thing about me. So I got $100 and my first thought was, uh, wow, what can I do with $100 for me? And so I thought about me quite a lot. In fact, quite a lot. And I worked out how to maximise my $100 and a little package turned up from, uh, from a wonderful website called Wiggle which you've not heard from before, but it's a bicycle website. And, uh, and it contained in it uh, two brakes, front and rear brakes for my bike. Not that my bike doesn't have brakes, but better brakes because I want to go up, razorback, and then I want to come down, razorback. And I want to make sure that coming down, razorback, I can actually pull up at the right place that I intend to. Anyway, that's, that's part of it. And then uh, there's also a wonderful thing that my wife I think is very proud of, which is a little headband there. Uh, which is for when it gets cold and your ears get cold when you drive right along. Anyway, so uh, so that was uh, so that was my hundred dollars, and uh, I've got to tell you that I thought about me. I don't really tell you that with any great pride, but that's what happened. I thought about me, and uh, I wanted to uh, wanted to ask you this morning: what what would you do if, uh, say, I handed you a hundred dollars? What would you do with it? give it to my wife to make up. <laughs> what would you do with it? What would be the first thing that pops into your head about where you might spend it? Now, you've probably been warned off where you were going to go because I said that I was confessing up the front here and I'd been thinking about me. So it's probably not a good, as good a thought experiment as it could have been. But where would you, what would you, what would you do with $100 if it just kind of dropped into your lap? We're a long way, uh, brothers and sisters, we're a long way away from the world that Jesus lived in. As we talk about, you know, bicycle brakes, which you're not thinking, whatever you were thinking about, it's a long way, it's a a long way, 2,000 years away from the world that Jesus lived in. And we live in Australia, we don't live in Palestine and we're not Jewish, or at least I've yet to know that you're Jewish if you are. So we don't think in the same way as a whole bunch of the people that Jesus was interacting with thought. So I thought it might be helpful as we look at these passages this morning to just refresh ourselves in the worldview, the way of thinking that the people at Jesus' time had towards money and the world around them. For the people in Jesus' time, possessions weren't evil. 
They weren't evil. Now, I don't think we necessarily have to adjust that today, but I want you to observe, they didn't think that stuff was bad. The things that we own. It it wasn't bad and we had to get rid of it all. It was okay. We received good things from God and we'd have used them for him. So possessions were not evil. Second thing, uh, wealth largely equaled piety. Now, I put that word up there and then I thought I should change it, but I'll leave it up there. Piety is basically, if you were wealthy, the large impression was it was probably because you were godly. And the reason for that was God would pour favour on the people who were doing the right thing and favour from God would more or less work out economically. So there's a certain sense is if you had wealth on the whole, I could probably guess that you were pious, you were a good person, generally speaking. So wealth was connected with being right with God. But more than that, more than that, almsgiving was righteous. Now, no one knows what almsgiving is, do they, these days? It's not about lopping these off, if that's what you're thinking. It's not that. Almsgiving is we give some of our money to the poor. And the idea was, if God had made you rich, you would show that you're righteous by giving some of it to the poor. Okay? So almsgiving, that's what those four letters there, almsgiving showed that you were a righteous person. If the money was from God, you'd prove that it was by giving it away to those who had less. Not all of it, but you'd give to help the poor. Does that make sense? So this is part of the worldview of people who are walking around the streets with Jesus. All right, well, let's think. Uh, Their world, like our world, divided in two. I think this is the driving division in the world around us. You can, you can say, you know, I think there's two types of people in the world and you can, you know, divide it up. Or you can say, you know, I think there are three types of people in the world, those who can count and those who can't. That's good. Very good. Okay, very good. Uh, lots of people divide the world up. I think this is actually quite a helpful one. It was the true, true then, true today. Rich people, poor people. But there was an even bigger division sort of inside that, inside each of those categories. And uh, by far, as their world is the same as our world, by far there were fewer rich people and more poor people. That makes sense, doesn't it? There was an elite group of people and then there was everybody else. Now, within both of those groups, the rich people and the poor people, there was some people who weren't good. We knew that some of these rich people weren't good at all. And the people who were rich and weren't good were Herod and his friends and family. So apparently someone, uh, somewhere I was reading uh, said that they, but basically King Herod, you heard of him? Although I think there are so many Herods, aren't there, Matthew? There's a ridiculous number of Herods. But anyway, I think there's four. Yes, that's right. Uh, a ridiculous number of Herods. But if you were related to one of the Herods, apparently him and his family owned up to a quarter of all the land in Israel. So... We don't like them very much. On top of that, Herod and his friends were put in position by the Romans, right? So anyone connected with him and his crew, basically we didn't like because they're foreign occupiers. You with me? So we don't like them. And then you've got the other people which are rich, definitely rich, but associated with Rome and they are the tax collectors. And what do we think about them? 
Correct, an appropriate response. That's right. Boo, we don't, we don't like the tax collectors, okay? We know they're bad. They're collaborating with the Romans. They take money from us and they call themselves Jews. Well, they're not Jews, are they? We don't like them. Okay, now among the poor, there is a group of people who we knew were bad, right? In the poor category. So prostitutes, tanners, so that's people who are making uh, stuff out of animal hide because they're unclean, basically. Um, shepherds, hide shepherds were probably down the order, um, and beggars were definitely not really liked because they were basically unclean, didn't like them. But the Pharisees and various other people would have looked at the poor people and said, actually, there's a much greater group of people amongst the poor who aren't really good. We'll call them the people of the land. And the reason they aren't really good is they don't have enough money to do all the right things in the eyes of the law. So they're not living as righteously as they should. Okay? Maybe they're not tithing everything. Maybe they aren't doing all their sacrifices. Basically, we look at them, we, if you're a Pharisee, and you go, these guys are basically, what's the, what's the derogatory turn of phrase we kind of use? The great unwashed. Yeah? There's kind of that sense of uncleanness and leastness about them. So in the world that's floating around the place, there's a really clear idea of who God's on board with, the righteous rich, and there's some of the poor people that he's kind of okay with. You with me? Okay, that's good. Let's step into three accounts. We're going to look at three accounts in Luke 16 to 19 of three people that Jesus talks about. So let's start with our, with our first one. So if you go open your Bibles, uh, we're going to Luke 16. And I'd love you to have a look at uh, Luke 16. Uh, verse 19, and we're going to go down to 31. So Luke 16, 19. Uh, and we've got the story here of Lazarus. Now, it's not the man that Jesus raised from the dead. We clear? It's not actually a story about what happens. It's a story that Jesus told to illustrate. Okay? So Jesus didn't meet Lazarus and a rich man and then tells a story. He's creating a picture that helps us learn something about the world. Does that make sense? So in this picture, it's not quite a parable. It's more an instructive illustration. So what that means is we look at some of the details. They're helping us to tell a story. They're not necessarily exactly how things are. And you'll know why when we get a little bit further along. So the story basically is about a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, we don't have to be schooled in first century understanding to get that that's a tragedy, do we? So here he is. Here's Lazarus. And uh, wonderfully in this painting here, he's reading his Bible. I just think that's great. <laughs> so we get that he's righteous. Okay, But here he is at the rich man's gate. And here's the rich man on the other side of the fence, living it up, having a party with his friends. And between Lazarus and the party is a gate. And you better believe Lazarus will never cross over. Are you with me? He'll never get in there. But he looks in through the gate and he thinks, I want some of that. I would love to have even the bits that the dogs get flicked underneath the table. They would satisfy me. Yeah? So let's, let's work through some of the details of, um, of this story and just observe some of the bits that we can learn about riches and poverty and who's right with God, okay? 
Now, in this story, as we open it up, we would think, what about the beggar? They're probably not doing very well in God's sight. What would we think about the rich man? Just generally, we'd think he's probably doing okay. Do you see why that lead-up work's so important? We're initially thinking we're not so keen on the beggar and we're quite keen on the rich guy. That's how it starts off. This story has at its heart a great reversal. If you can't tell my picture up there, it's a guy doing a handstand that I've tipped upside down. So there's earth at the top and sky at the bottom. Are you with me? Okay, very good. It's a reversal, upside down. Have a look with me at verses 22 to 25. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. First shock. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away. Second shock with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you receive good things. Well, Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. One day, this story teaches, a great reversal will happen a great reversal will happen. The least will be lifted up and the the great will be brought low. Secondly, it's fixed. This division, this great reversal after you die is fixed. Have a look at how strongly it says it here in verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. This is as explicit as it gets in the Bible to say when you die, your destiny is sealed. There is no second chance. There isn't a moment of clarity when you then change positions. It's done. It's fixed. Now, the reason I said to you it's an illustrative story, I'm not sure in hell whether there will be a window into heaven. Are you with me? Can you see the details here? I'm not sure about that. But it tells us the story that Hades, in this story here, is to be avoided, isn't it? I think we can get that much. And so it's fixed. There's a fixed gap. What sent the rich man there? What sent the rich man there was neglect. He had had Lazarus at his door. In fact, he knew enough to ask for Lazarus to do something. Have a listen to verse 28 and verse 27. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. He knows Lazarus' name. And yet he never gave him even the scraps at his door. Are you with me? It would appear from this story, Jesus saying the thing that damned him to Hades was his willful neglect of the known poverty at his door. How big is that? That's huge. And notice he still thinks he's a rich man, doesn't he? Have a listen to the way he speaks. He says, oh, by the way, can you send Lazarus to do this? Did you get how obscene that is? Make this guy be my servant to do my job. 
Can you see that? He's still thinking like a rich man. Here's that even more appalling bit. Do you know what he could have asked? He could have asked, can I get out of here? He doesn't. He's there through neglect. The remedy, it says, is in the word of God. And, uh, and what it says very powerfully there is uh, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to him. Now, the response is, no, they won't. Give them somebody back from the dead and they'll listen. And Jesus is unequivocal. He says this, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. A dead person won't change their hearts. Now, that's, that's instructive as we come to Easter, isn't it? Do you think Jesus is speaking prophetically here? I absolutely do. They won't even believe a resurrected one who warns them. Well, how could Moses and the prophets have warned them? It's everywhere in the Old Testament, but let me pick just two that are right next to each other. Have a look with me in Proverbs 22 up here. No need to turn to it. I've got it on the screen. Rich and poor have this in common, says Proverbs 22.2, the Lord is the maker of them all. Common humanity, the very thing that gets jettisoned when you figure that you're rich and they're poor, is common humanity. Get rid of it. You're a dog and I'm important. Here it is in the Psalms. It says, no, the Lord is the maker of both. Then have a look, just verse 9. Just a couple of verses down. The generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. Isn't that incredible? There it is. There's actually the description of blessing that will flow to the rich if they're generous to the poor. It's right there in space of seven verses in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is overflowing with this. What was the problem? The problem was that the rich man refused to relate to the poor man who was at his door. He even knew his name, but he couldn't spare food scraps for him. Death shows that he was wrong. When he dies, it's revealed that the way he evaluated the world was wrong. He is in Hades and Lazarus is at Abraham's side. What does this tell us? It tells us that heaven is impossible for the careless rich. Heaven is impossible for the careless rich. Wow. Next story. Lazarus is a made-up person to help tell a story. This person is someone who literally bumped into Jesus on the road. And we're going to turn, turn in our Bibles and we're going to go to uh, Luke chapter 18 and verse 18. Luke chapter 18 and verse 18. In this story, we see a rich young man. It says, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we have a rich ruler and we have Jesus physically meeting each other on the road. Well, let me observe a few things from, uh, from this story. The first thing is that the rich man comes up to Jesus, as I think everyone who's rich does, with a sense of self, a sense of confidence. Good, good teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I have my resume here. I'm ready to go. Uh, is there anything I need to add to this? Because I'm good. Good teacher, can you tell me what else I have to tick off my list? 
There's a confidence, an arrogance, a resume of righteousness that's presented by the rich man. Well, that's a surprise because he's deceived. Have a listen to how Jesus responds. First of all, Jesus says to him, uh, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. That could be a head-scratching moment. Who is good except God alone? Who's Jesus, the son of, just checking if you're with me, son of God, yeah? So if you walk up to Jesus and you say, good teacher, you've missed the point, haven't you? You could say, good God. So here he is standing in Jesus' presence. He's misunderstood who Jesus is. This is also what he's misunderstood. Jesus says, you know the commandments. I reckon he's just going, yep, of course I do. Have a look with me. Uh, Verse 20, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honour your father and mother. And he's like, boom, fantastic. I reckon Jesus just stopped speaking and this is what he said, all these I've kept since I was a boy. What was Jesus' first question? You know the commandments. What could his answer have been? Yeah, Jesus, I know the commandments. There's ten of them and you've missed five. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an idol for yourself. You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath holy and you shall not covet. They're the five that are missing. Do you think Jesus did that deliberately? Or he just didn't know all ten commandments? Isn't it incredible that the man jumps in at this point and declares his righteousness? He's deceived greatly. Jesus goes on and said, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Easy. That's the only one thing you lack. You ask me for one thing, what's the one thing I need to do? Here's the one thing you need to do. You've asked the good teacher, the good teacher says, sell everything and come follow me. Oh, by the way, where does the money go? To the poor. He says, come follow me. When the man heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I just, want to, uh, I just want to just do this for you. Uh, I think this is one of the most obvious illustrations in the Bible. Actually, Carrie, can you pass me up? In the front page of that Bible there is your needles. Can you just in that front page? Just, no, just top cover. Oh, no, not there. Oh, tragedy. Have I got them here? Oh, it's all right. Don't worry. Thank you, wife. That's my fault. You haven't done anything wrong. I, I don't know where they are. Anyway, uh, can you imagine a needle? This is how much of it you could see anyway, all right? So just imagine it's there. I'm holding up a needle. Is the opening in a needle big or small? I'm just going just to give you a little bit more time. Uh, is it big or small? Thank you. Now, uh, what is the largest moving object in the ancient world? Right? Probably right. I'm guessing, I'm guessing that there aren't many elephants in Jerusalem. Might be wrong, but I don't think there are. At which case, we move down to the next thing, which is a camel. Do you know how big a camel is? Apparently, they're 2.4 metres tall at the top of their hump. Do you know how much they weigh? 
a thousand kilograms. A thousand kilograms. What he's saying is the smallest opening you know and the biggest movable thing you have, putting that through this is what it's like getting rich people into heaven. For us, it might be like taking an A380 and putting it through the transistor gate on a microchip. The point is not that there's some tricky way to get around this. It's not an architectural feature in Jerusalem. Here's the point. Big things don't go through small things. Rich people don't naturally get to heaven. Boom. That would have absolutely messed with their brains. That's not right. Jesus says it's impossible. So the, so the, the disciples naturally ask, well then, who gets to be saved? And we would never have understood their question if we didn't understand the worldview they had. Jesus, if you're saying rich people don't get in, who the heck gets into heaven? Who then can be saved? And so Jesus says, actually, uh, verse 27, what is impossible with God is, uh, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Fantastic. It is impossible without who? Jesus God. It's impossible without God. You can't get in. Then Peter pipes up. Peter is such a piper upper. He's a jump in the water guy. He's a put up a tent guy. He's a rebuke Jesus guy. So he just can't help himself. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. I'm listening. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, no one who has left wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive as many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. If you have to leave everything for Jesus, he says, I'll give you a family bigger than you can imagine. And eternal life. The exchange will be worth it. It'll be worth it. A great reversal will happen. This rich man denied the danger of his money. He denied the danger, thought it wasn't a problem. And Jesus shows he's wrong. My wealth isn't a problem. I've been ticking off my righteousness list. Jesus, just tell me the one last thing I've got to do. He didn't know the danger of his wealth. And Jesus showed him, you're wrong. Riches make heaven impossible. You can run underneath that without God, but I want you to hear the strong version first. You with me? All right, third person. One of our favourite people in the Bible, isn't he? I just love this guy, and it's not because of my stature. <laughs> I love this bloke. I love this bloke. You know, whenever we're in big crowds, anyway... Uh, it was great. We went to, uh, went to see something uh, uh, in town with the kids uh, and uh, there were thousands of people around. It was the Royal Navy display. And I'm trying to get the kids up on my shoulder so they can see. And there's Paul Arundel. Stand up for us, Paul. No. <laughs> and Paul just goes, <laughs> and the kids have to wear oxygen masks. But they can see like it's just fantastic. Anyway, so this story has Jesus in it and has Zacchaeus up a tree. And we love Zacchaeus, right? Now, we know we love Zacchaeus, but guess what? You don't love Zacchaeus at the start of this story. You shouldn't. 
if you're a first hearer. Okay, so have a look with me. Uh, Zacchaeus is in chapter 19. And uh, verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho, was about to pass through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. And what's your response, audience? Okay, great. Now you're playing along. That's fantastic. He wanted to see who Jesus was, and we're just like, yeah. But because he was short, he could not see in the crowd, so he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. Jesus was coming that way. The first thing we see is Jesus' desire for fellowship. Have a look with me at verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked, he looked up and said to him, now I love this, I don't know. Jesus knows his name. Had Jesus hung out in Jericho before? Unlikely. He was a northerner. Jericho's down near Jerusalem. He walks into a town that he's passing through, looks up to a tree. I think this is just one of those beautiful moments. Looks up to a tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm having dinner at your place today. Isn't that awesome? So Jesus initiates fellowship with a man that everyone else would have been happy throwing rocks at. There's a great reversal. Have you picked up this theme? There's a great reversal, but it's initiated in response to the fellowship from Jesus. Have a read with me at verse 8. Well, verse 7, you get the idea. The people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be a guest of a sinner. Now, we agree with them, don't we, crowd? What the heck is Jesus doing that for? Appalling man. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. Half. Voluntarily. Half to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay them back four times that amount. Do you think he got it? By the way... Do you reckon he cheated anyone out of anything? Well, it's entirely possible. We actually don't know his character. Maybe he was a very scrupulous tax collector for the Romans. But I think he's saying, I'm going to pay back whatever I took that was too much. And he does it four times. Do you know the law only says if you steal something, you have to pay back a fifth. The only person who offers to pay back four times is King David when he gets angry about the guy who took the sheep. Do you remember the story? The prophet comes to him and says, you've taken this sheep. And David gets all righteously angry and says, should pay back four times that. And then Nathan springs on him and says, actually, you're the man who took this. Do you remember with Bathsheba? Anyway. But that's the only time I can find in the Old Testament a four times repayment. And here's Zacchaeus saying, I'm in. I'm all in. Half my money gone to who? The poor. And if I've cheated anyone, I'm going to pay him back four times. Isn't that brilliant? He initiates the reversal because he sees Jesus' offer of fellowship and thinks it's worth it. He gets it. Salvation comes to the house. Have a look at Jesus. Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a terrible sinner. No, have a look what it says in verse 9. A son of Abraham. He is as much descended from Abraham as anyone in this room because he's trusting me. Huge. And then Jesus summarizes it and says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You guys have seen on TV, internet, radio, everything, how much effort people are putting in to find this plane that's gone missing? Our God is on a mission to seek and save the lost. 
a mission that will leave no stone unturned, that will seek out the corners of the earth. Isn't that brilliant? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Not the people who walk up with a resume of righteousness, but the people who know that they have to climb a tree to get a glimpse of Jesus. Are you with me? He responded repentantly. That's what he did. He heard Jesus and responded repentantly. And Jesus declares he's right. You're right. Salvation has come to this home. And so we see God alone makes heaven possible for the rich. God makes it possible. God alone makes heaven possible for the rich. Okay, so what should we do? Well, I think we should learn three lessons from these three people. And so that's what we're going to do. Point one, don't ignore the poor. Uh, I need to tell you up front, I have been and I must repent. I've started reading a book. Uh, My brother's just started working for an organisation called the International Justice Mission. I started reading this book called The Locust Effect. When I've finished it, some of you will be burdened with this book and you'll have to read it as well. Uh, It's stunning, absolutely stunning. Uh, Remember the rich man in the story knew that the poor were there and ignored them while he had a party, yeah? And he was damned for it. Uh, I have been consciously, unconsciously, deliberately, undeliberately, whatever, I've been ignoring the poor. We can't hear this sermon and ignore the poor. Can't do it. Here's what I want to tell you. If we think about who we are in this story, and Matt did some of this uh, last year, I think, But if we hear us in the story, this is a global index of uh, quality of life. And it's got Norway, Switzerland, Canada, Sweden, New Zealand, Denmark, Australia. There's 183 countries on this list, and Australia is number seven. And you go, look, forget, forget quality of life. Give us the hard facts. These numbers are from the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. They were done at the end of last year. Of those 183 countries, take what the countries make as a total and divide it by the number of heads in it and you get a number. This number for Australia is $44,073.81 and it places us 10th in the world, 10th in the world, behind Qatar who has oil, Luxembourg who's so tiny they don't really count as a country and have banking in them. Singapore, again, tiny, tiny country with heaps of uh, shipping hubs and stuff, whatever, running through it. Norway, Brunel Darislam, whatever that is. Hong Kong, United States, Arab Emirates, Switzerland and us. Number 10 in the world out of 183 countries. You know, if this was the medal tally, we'd be cheering, wouldn't we? We'd be saying, we're punching above our weight, aren't we doing brilliantly? What this is saying is we are the 10th richest country in the world. Now, where do where? Where do you and I rank in the 10th richest country in the world? I don't know. But I can tell you with some degree of confidence, no one here is in the category of the poor. Now, that's not to say your life might not be hard. Can I just be very clear here? You can be in Australia and be poor comparatively, okay? Really. And you can still struggle on whatever you make. So that's not I'm, not, I'm not saying it's all easy living. What I'm saying is we have an extraordinary amount of money comparatively. I'll tell you how much comparatively. 
if I, uh, if I drop this coin on the, uh, on the screen there, and I tell you that there are people living on $2 a day, I want to ask you how many people you, you think there are in the world who are living on $2 a day? Millions. There are 7 billion people in the world, and this is the fact. 2 billion people. Two billion people are living on $2 a day. What that means in practice, brothers and sisters, is $100 that I picked up is their yearly income. Yearly income. That is grinding poverty. That's the first one. We can't ignore the poor. Second lesson. Don't ignore the danger of your wealth. And I know you're going to tell me we're struggling, we can't make a mortgage payment. You're going to tell me all of those things, right? I get it. I understand our stress. But what I want to tell you is the house that we're paying off is extraordinary. The food on our table is out of all proportion to what people in the world who struggle would hope to have. Our hardships are hardships relatively. Can I say that? Don't ignore the danger. Our wealth is not a pillow to be hugged. It's not something to comfort us. It's not something to put our head down and rely on. Here's what it is like. It's like a can of petrol. Would you hug a can of petrol? Would you get up close and personal with a can of petrol? Is petrol useful? Absolutely. But here's, I looked up the, uh, the uh, New Zealand EPA. Here's what they say. Petrol is highly flammable. Is one of the most hazardous substances that we use. Because it's so easily ignited, you must handle it with great care. It says, as well as being flammable, it's poisonous. If you breathe it, if you get it on your skin, if you put any static electricity around it, it's likely to burst into flame. It will kill you. Our wealth is like a can of petrol, not a pillow to be hugged. It has its proper purpose. It's not to be despised, but we mustn't underestimate its danger. Lazarus. Uh, not Lazarus, Zacchaeus. Do take practical steps to share. Do take practical steps to share. You know, it says one of our wonderful values over here, which we've been struggling with, compassionate over here. Compassionate on our brochure says, we're hearing Jesus' call to love. It says, do you know how God's gifted you to serve? And then it says, how are you bringing Jesus' love to the least? I'm struggling to do it. How are we bringing Jesus' love to the least? Here's what I want to tell you. Uh, outside, uh, I was just going to slip this under your windscreen, but I can't do it. Where's it gone? Oh, I've lost my envelope. Anyway, my envelope looks just like this. Uh, underneath your, um, your envelope, uh, underneath your windscreen, sorry, as you go back to your car today, you've just got a parking fine. Uh, I looked up the parking fines. There are all sorts of wonderful parking fines. Did you know that? Anyway, Rule 185.1C or something is that if you stay longer than the designated time in a parking spot, it'll cost you $101. If you don't park at 45 degrees exactly to the curb, you can be fined $101. If you don't park rear to curb when it asks you to, you can be fined $101. So here's what I'm just going to do. I'm just going to fine everyone here $100. Okay. Now, what happens when you get a parking fine? Number one, what? You, 
you curse and stamp and you look at the sign, you take a picture of the sign, you get a ruler out and you say, oh, and a protractor. And you... But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Right now, if I got a parking fine, what I would have to do is pay it. And I just suck it up and do it because bang my head against the wall, there it is. I'm going to suggest to you that we just got a parking fine of $100. All of us, each family, $100. And what I want us to do, I've actually got some envelopes here. Carrie, do you want to hand the envelopes out? That'd be great. Actually, Russell, you can help so Carrie doesn't feel it's just her doing it. Uh, One per family. Uh, Just one per family, that'd be great. Uh, and uh, if you have a look at the screen while they're coming around, can you notice it? How, how good is this? It says poor parking fine. That's good. Give it to Michelle. That's good. Household manager, you see? That's good. To... Oh, they shouldn't have that in it. Oh, do they? Oh, if they've got that in it, take that out and scrunch it up. Oh, is that right? I don't think all of them have got it, do they? Do they all have a piece of paper? They do? Oh, that's good. I must have looked. I'm sorry, mate. I must have looked at the first half of the envelopes, and they didn't have it anyway. Look, I'm, I'm actually. I want to say this very clearly. I want to say this very clearly, and, and it's, it's really helpful, Matt. Thank you for saying that. It is not about raising money for our church. Everyone looking at me. This actually isn't about raising money for our church. So if it has that in it, take it out. Although we'd love you to do that, please. Just yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. What I want you to think is. If you got that parking fine today and it was 100 bucks, you'd just pay it. You wouldn't even think about it. we just have to get on and pay it, right? Now, if you tell me today, I don't have $100, I don't care, that's fine. What I want you to do for the next 50 days is put $2 a day in there. You reckon we can do that? promise you we've got enough spare change to do that. And what I want to seed for you, and I'm going to do it with Carolyn and our kids is I want us to have some conversations around our tables at home. And go, if we've got an envelope here that has 100 bucks in it, and we've heard God's challenge to love the poor, what would we do with it? Are you with me? What would we do with it as a family? Where would we care? Where would we show Jesus' love to the least? Are you with me? I think it's absolutely impossible for us to sit under the message that we've just heard today and not do something. Now, some of you will say rightly, hey, I've got our foster children. We're looking after kids in somewhere. And if you're doing that, I want to say, bless your hearts. Please keep doing it. And if you want to chuck another hundred bucks their way, go for it. Okay, I'm not, I'm not assuming you're doing nothing. But I want all of us to do something. Does that make sense? Here's, uh, here's where we're going to finish. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19 says this. Command those. Do you see how strong that is? Paul's, Paul's writing to the church. It says, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant and to put their hope in wealth like a pillow, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, why would you do it, brothers and sisters? In this way, you will lay up for themselves a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. Father, the people in this room who are smashing this out of the park, please bless them, 
Keep them, sustain them, give them more money to be generous, Father. For those of us who struggle, who maybe this has been a blindness for, have mercy on us. Father, help us to treat our wealth with wary respect. Help us to treasure heaven and to be generous to the least. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. I preached long. Um, I don't apologise for that, but uh, it was. And uh, I want us to think about this message. I want it to grip us. I want that value of compassion, compassionate, to actually define us, to be something about the way we live our lives, not just a nice word up there. I'm going to lead us in a prayer of confession, and I've got stuff to confess after that. So how about we pray to our great God together? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed and in what we have failed to do. Have mercy on us. Forgive us all that is past and grant that we may serve you and live a new life to your glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And here's the wonderful truth. This is the wonderful truth. It's the same hope for Zacchaeus as it is for you and I. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's good news, brothers and sisters. It's good news. We're going to remember the reason we have such great hope as we do the Lord's Supper together. I'm going to uh, grab some bits and then we're going to do some call and response stuff. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. He is worthy of all praise. On the night before he died... Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the meal, he took the cup and again giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these gifts of your creation and pray that we who eat and drink them in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, believing our Saviour's word, may be partakers of his body and blood. Amen. As we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. And we do this until he returns with energy, church. Okay, that was pretty good. What I'm going to ask now is that we might be able to distribute uh, the juice and the bread and uh, ask some different people. Les, would you like to come and help out? Can you do that? And uh, Joanne, would you be able to help? Would that be possible?
Is that all right? And maybe Russell as well and maybe Carolyn because we'll need to pass out the bread and the cups. That'd be great. Thank you. And what I'll ask you to do, if you can take the cup and the bread and hang on to them, we're going to eat them together, eat and drink together.